it's challenging, but I feel like it's one of the things that the Monuments Toolkit should highlight if we are including the Hello everyone, this is Miles Ezilo, back again for the Monumental Project on behalf of the Monuments Toolkit and World Heritage USA. Today, we'll be looking inward at what makes the Monuments Toolkit such an interesting project. Instead of an outside guest speaker, we'll be sitting down with some of our best and brightest research minds to uncover all of the tools found in the Monuments Toolkit. Let's dive in! For the last year and a half, the Monumental Project has taken a close look at all the pieces of historical preservation, activism, public art, and legislation that has created the conversation around monuments of oppression. These conversations, as you can hear in our previous episodes, are extremely multifaceted and nuanced. An array of industries, missions, and opinions have created a very interesting mosaic of perspectives. This is a vital part of the Monuments Toolkit, finding the individual actors and institutions that play a part in this ongoing conversation we're having, between the art of the past, the perspectives of now, and the way we're moving towards the future. With all that being said, it's time that we shine a light on the Monuments Toolkit itself. What are the elements that make this project so interesting? What are the components that we focus on? And what are the next steps for developing research towards this topic? To speak to that, we sat down with William Humphrey and Gilbert Correa, two members of the research and publications team for the Monuments Toolkit. William Humphrey is a researcher and heritage professional with an affinity for the intersection of art and culture. He received his master's in cultural heritage management from Johns Hopkins University after working in a series of positions with museum and heritage organizations. Past projects include History on Trial, a handbook for controversial monuments, a celebration of Afghanistan's cultural heritage, and a proposal for mental health hotlines to assist resettled North Korean refugees. As a program associate of research and publication for the Monuments Toolkit, Humphrey seeks to disseminate these stories and strategies to wider audiences across the globe. Master Gilbert C. Correa is an astute museum, cultural heritage, and historic preservation professional with over 10 years of combined national as well as international experience in the education and nonprofit industries. Master Correa received his master's in honorific in museology and museum administration from the Instituto Iberoamericano de Museología in Pontevedra, Galicia, Spain. Master Correa provides consulting services to nonprofits like museums, heritage centers, foundations, and academic institutions. Consulting services include, but are not limited to, strategic planning, accreditation, marketing, disaster risk reduction and management, fundraising, and more. Master Correa is passionate and dedicated to applying his expertise to struggling cultural institutions and organizations and aid in the fulfillment of their missions to preserve and protect their cultural heritage for future generations. In a very fascinating conversation, we talked about the Monuments Toolkit's inner workings, what we're aiming to accomplish on a grand scale, the case studies that have made the biggest impact on the project, and the conversations that we need to have in order to continue the best work possible. Enjoy!
Gilbert, you said that yours was the Juan de Oñate in, in New Mexico, and thank you for sharing that. Yes, um, William, do you have a favorite? Um, yes, but I guess more than one case study, it's more of a series. Um, I've really come to be more and more intertwined with the Comfort Women memorials. Mm -hmm. And um, so to give a very quick rundown, the Comfort Women or the Comfort Women memorials are a series of tributes made to uh, victims of sexual enslavement by the Japanese militaries, um, by the... What is it by the imperial japanese military during world war ii and they were not limited to just east asia but southeast asia um apparently the netherlands and some areas of america um all had been affected by the um treat by the war and the japanese imperial army and what's so interesting about this case study is that um it all really exploded in south korea mm -hmm. there i don't remember the exact year maybe 2005 or so but there was a point where some of the survivors uh came up and began to protest uh publicly oh, wow. about uh the mistreatment they've had the fact that there's nothing of this is being taught in schools and the survivors and the survivors' families felt as though the government should address what was going on, both in Japan and in their own country. And um, I was able to visit uh, quite a few statues, and I even had the opportunity to interview one of the artists that created the original statue while I was on vacation. Oh, wow. And he mentioned, um, while I was in... I think it was when I was in Seoul or Busan. He he was mentioning that the work that him and his wife do, they're an artist couple. Uh, his wife created the design for the Comfort mm -hmm. Woman memorials. And the work that they do is act not only frowned upon by Japanese media, but in some cases, other government officials are not always approving of the work they do because right. not only do they create statues that address um the pain that south korea has dealt with they've also addressed statues that um sort of address some of the bad things that their country has done like in relation mm. to the vietnam war yeah. they were planning a project on that and face pushback so i think that case study encompasses so many different um, countries, but also perspectives on how um, World War II should be seen and the fact that this is still such an underdeveloped um, topic around the war and around social justice is something that makes this case study so difficult to really pack down and to really isolate. So you have to view it from a holistic perspective and yeah. it's challenging but i feel like it's one of the things that the monuments toolkit should highlight if we are including a global perspective in our work yeah absolutely yeah the most challenging work is usually the most rewarding and you you had a webinar on this right oh yes yes there was a webinar i think it's titled um 
protecting the legacy of the Comfort Women Memorials. And it includes perspectives from Korea, uh, the United States, as well as the Philippines, which is wow. another area that isn't often um, talked about with this movement. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And if you haven't checked it out, please check out that webinar. It's really, really, really interesting. Returning to the research process, I believe that the idea of investigating and researching something is kind of become a suggestion rather than a requirement. You know, people sharing their opinions with little to no factual evidence to back it up is something you see a lot online. Uh, it's typically because the concept of the truth varies depending on who you ask and where society is at the time, right? Um, can you share examples of how social ideas of the truth have altered through time? How did these adjustments in perspective, in your opinion, as historic preservation professionals influence our perception of previous events and shape our current beliefs and values? Um, it's a heavy question. I know either of you can start, um, but we have the best and brightest. Uh, Gilbert, what do you feel about this? Oh, that's a very good question, man. I think that for, for me, in the, recent, or the case studies I've mainly done and from my own upbringing and experience in the West Coast, I would say that uh, the truth, the social ideas of truth are barely starting to change, especially as we're dealing with this rather you know, strong religio-conservative uh, mindset as it pertains to statues and, and uh, well, cultural heritage, especially in public public spaces yeah um it's 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 little by little starting to transform where we're seeing that transform from the 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 say for instance the you know the saint of the sanct sanctification of junipero serra to more of him as being a you know what an individual sure is complex who yeah. unfortunately well he may in his time period may have not done anything actually fought for the native american rights and so forth the his legacy the establishment of the mission system has actually had quite the detrimental effect over the course of time on the folk mm. there's trauma and so forth so the stories are barely barely starting to come to light and really the detonator i would say of what's bringing that truth out is uh was the remains or what, what was uncovered at the uh you know different missions throughout california in particular mm -hmm. comes to mind as mission san gabriel archangel and um and i'd say that's that's really what's happening it's 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 barely starting to come out uh, the momentum's pretty small but it is indeed coming up uh, and i think really the the big takeaway there for the folk that are maybe more fighting against those types of truths coming out or those types of dialogue is is to not uh, is i think transparency i think that's really the the key here but transparency doesn't have to be something where you destroy something in exchange for something else as, as we've been constantly talking to the to the mission people about yeah it's mainly more like you know we just want you to acknowledge the story that's it you know just put a mm. plaque uh, invite us to your discussions and that's it you know we won't be talking about we, we're, we're not here to destroy we're here to actually uh cooperate collaborate and and, and and talk about these and just like for example old uh mission basilica um uh san buenaventura in in, in uh, santa barbara 
they they were able to 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 do that you know they came together uh, the mission knew that there was this history the native folk that knew that there was this history so instead of just ignoring each other they just got together they spoke about it and now look there's something constructive that finally is coming to fruition which in this case is a monument that acknowledges the the fallen chumash mm. so so something like that you know i would say that's really what it is uh, in a nutshell as concise as i can think of mm-hmm. yeah absolutely that uh that shift when history and the truth kind of changes and everybody acknowledges it, um, that kind of group acceptance does not happen a lot. So that space actually having the, I would say the maturity for everyone to come together and understand that this is a new way that we have to look at this, this figure and this history. That's super rare because I, I rarely see that when it comes to Confederate monuments, the understanding of wrongdoing is very surface level at times and the i would say the reconciliation for the wrongs that happen is usually a harder process um so the fact that that site was able to to get to that point is is a big achievement that's pretty cool william what would you say about this i know it's a a heavy question like i said but yeah when it comes to the idea of truth kind of changing when history and time is moving forward um, as a historic preservation professional, like how do you feel about those adjustments and how we should be looking at them? Um, it's really hard to say. Even personally, I feel like the truth when it comes to researching or when it comes to objects or information of historical value, it's always been a subjective thing. Yeah. You know, we we have a lot of textbooks and the winners write that history or whoever's in power. Um I think when it comes to the case studies there's been quite a few times where I thought I had an understanding of the black and white sides of the case study. Uh, for mm-hmm. instance, there was a there's a monument over in front of the Boston Museum of Fine Arts that um I believed was problematic mainly because the first two journals I was able to find documenting the work um, had said so. And I figured, you know, these are scholarly journals. These are literary people with PhDs and masters have wrote this. So I figured, okay, I, I guess I can go into this interview thinking that I kind of have it all figured out, but that Mm -hmm. ended up not being the case. And I was, surprised but also informed that the artist uh had actually been an activist uh, cyrus stalin Hmm. he had done a lot of work for the benefit of indigenous peoples and although his position as um a white male did influence the way that he interprets or the iconography that he uses um, if you look at his quotes and the way that he adjusts the unfair treatment of indigenous people, um, addresses that treatment, um, you can see that he really does care about social justice. And mm-hmm. we're look a lot of people make the mistake of looking through his work as a series that shows mm-hmm. the vanishing race, quote unquote. Um, I was given an article that argued the opposite of that perspective and that it's so easy 
to end up um, believing just one side of the debate once you're shown a legitimate source. Even the legitimate sources have their own perspective. And that's something important to consider as we expand and move forward with the toolkit. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that was well said. Thank you for that. Um, and I think that kind of flows into our next question about the emergence of different perspectives and the information that comes along with it. We're approaching 2024, which means that it's been about four years, almost four years since the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor protests. And these protests, as you both know, were catalysts for the removal of many controversial monuments. From a journalistic sense, you can still kind of find stories based on those events, albeit in a bit more indirect manner. What I see a lot are municipal laws enacted as a result of the protests, both progressive and conservative in nature, and the ensuing reactions to them, whether it be protests or laws or you know other kinds of things that happened because the monuments came down, we're reacting now, we have more time to process them, and now we have stories that come out of it. From a research side, what is the present state of monument data? Would you say that the scope has shifted since we started? Has it you know, increased? Has it decreased? Um, what can you guys say about the actual information you're gaining from the monument standpoint um, from when we started to now? From the from the data that I've been collecting, it's it's pretty it's slowed down significantly. Mm. Um, and this is actually tied to the subsequent question on the um, on which is question number nine on the upcoming work. Um, right. One of the one of the things that I'm trying well. I won't. I won't go into detail now. I'll, I'll save that part for the next question. Um, I would say that it, it slowed down significantly. There's not a lot of movement that I've been able to to ascertain. Mm -hmm. Perhaps maybe William might have seen something more. Um, and this is mainly I'm speaking in terms of monuments in the U.S. mainland. Mm. Um, I haven't really seen much abroad. The only one that I've seen abroad is from Mexico. Christopher Columbus statue in Mexico City. Um, that one's also had a little bit more movement, but not, nothing too nothing too significant. Um, so the data is is showing that the there's the protest and activity has gone down. In terms of laws or any type of legislature, from the ones that I've worked on or the case studies, uh, the missions have taken since the the pro, since the missions as well as the statues of Junipero Serra and the like. Those are all private properties. So what they've done is they just put that in storage. I haven't really seen them do anything in terms of uh, like legislature. Uh, I did hear that. Um, they uh, they had something, or maybe I just have to confirm this, where they've uh, had some type of amendment or something like that to mm -hmm. the private, to like privacy property and so forth, that there's like more, they're going to enforce more uh, more penalties and more punishments for anybody who, who breaks or attacks uh, private property, especially as it pertains to them. I still have to confirm that. Uh, at the public side or at the more, yeah, like more uh, municipal government level, I haven't really seen much either. Not mm. much uh, is happening legislative wise. Um, politically wise, we might, I, I can give you a forecast. I suspect that we might see protests or we might see some type of activity. Uh, fingers crossed that this doesn't happen. Um Possibly within the ne uh, within sometime next year, as we start to get closer and closer to the elections. Mm. <laughs> but mm. as of right now, things have have slowed down. Yeah, that's what the data is showing. Okay, interesting. So the dust is starting to settle, but I think it's it's a natural part of you know cause and effect. And I think 
this is probably the time where we have the most reflection. I, I think up to now, there's been a lot of acting on emotion and kind of reacting ad hoc to the situations that have come up, the the unrest that has been a result of some of these um, monuments and figures in our communities. And now that, like you said, we're reaching kind of a slower point, I think what can result now is a bit more reflection and kind of tempered conversations without so much of, you know, national news and coverage poking at it, you know? William, what do you think? Um, so for me, I've noticed I want to say two things with uh, all these case studies and the recent news that's come to my desk. Um, first, I'd like to say there's been a trend of nations recognizing their mistakes. Uh, this can be seen um, in a lot of countries. Uh, for one, um, in the United States, there's, I think, only a few instances of the government, U.S. government making an official apology. Uh, one of these instances is the National Japanese American Memorial to Patriotism, hmm. which includes an apology by, I'm not sure which president off the top of my head, but yep. it was... The apology was because of executive order, I think, 9066, which involved um, the U.S. government forcibly um, incarcerating Japanese-American citizens uh, on its own soil into um, these camps across the U.S. And this was done while tensions over... Um, World War II were high, and after Pearl Harbor, there was a lot of uh, dissentment between um, fellow Americans. You know, they they are a part of this country and this country's yeah. history, yet they were jailed up so quick. And it's in hopes that something like this would never occur again on U.S. soil. Um, another instance of this would be the... Um, Stolperstein or Stumbling Stones in Germany mm. that um, contain the names of families, their addresses, and I think the year that they may have been believed to have been relocated during the Nazi occupation of Germany or World War II once again. Wow. Um, there's this wave of nations recognizing their mistakes isn't to be, isn't to self-deprecate or to demonize a particular group of people, it's really for forward thinking and for progress, you know, to mm -hmm. embrace social justice and to show future generations that even a powerful nation is not above um, making mistakes. Right. And right. there's instances you can look back on. Uh, another pattern I've noticed is that... Um, there has been several times where people are addressing dark periods of time in their nation's history mm. and activists and community leaders are starting to retake public space due to this wave. Um, Prague metronome in the Czech Republic is a installation that originally wasn't meant to be permanent, right. but it rests on the grounds of, I believe what was the tallest um dedicated statue to stalin wow uh, to this point and 
even though it can't separate itself from uh, the context that used to be there, um, the fact that the monument is still prevalent today is important, and people from different generations will value it for different things. More recently, um, a lot of skaters and youth frequent the monument for reasons that may be completely detached from the history of that space yeah but yeah. if you have someone from another generation they too may recall you know what used to be here and what life had been in the hardships associated wow. so i think those two patterns are would be very fruitful to continue studying and we hope to discover other aspects of the toolkit that may not have been uh in broad daylight when we first looked at our notes yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I think that's one of the most beautiful pieces of the toolkit, the idea that this isn't a a stagnant, only once in time kind of project. This has the potential to go on for a long time because of, like you said, nations are trying to wake up and realize that things are going on in their own world. There are, you know, with the ongoing ebbs and flows of election cycles, these kind of, of topics get brought up over and over again. And because they are still in our communities, we have the ability to kind of question it as our ideas of what these historical figures meant to us change or stay the same or whatever the case may be. But um, I think although the initial spark of contentious monuments has left, it's left us with a wake of so many different interesting topics of historical pieces, of activism pieces, of political sides. And I think the Monuments Toolkit is is a big factor in trying to make that as widespread to, to the masses as possible. So I'm excited. I hope you guys are too. If you guys could please give a shout out to all of the upcoming work the research team is doing, the webinars, the events, the publications, I think everyone would love to know what is next on the research side. So up next for the research one, I think it, okay, so right now we're planning a, a new webinar um, in in light of a potential collaboration with ICOMOS Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, the topic is the conservation of oppressive monuments. Mm -hmm. However, um, that may take more time to develop. So instead, we're attempting to collaborate with um, heritage professionals in Mexico and mm. Australia, okay. uh, more specifically about um, the conservation of divisive monuments. And yeah. this will include, um, sorry, Gilbert, do you, do you happen to know the name? It's escaping me of the yes. monuments. Yes, it's, it's Dr. Christina Garduño Freeman. Oh, and the monument itself is called the Angel of Independence or the Angel de la, de, de la Independencia. Wow. Okay. And that's in Mexico. Oh, thank you. Yes, in Mexico yes. City. Nice, nice. Yes, it's it's interesting because um, not only is this in relation to feminism and preventing violence against women, um, but also... This case study involves the beliefs of conservationists. Mm. And the conservationists have always been 
a huge factor into the museum world. So I was surprised to see how involved they were with regards to social justice and the movement surrounding this monument. Um, in particular, there was a treatise, or I, I don't want to call it a manifesto, but a sort of treaty was drawn up between all of the authorities on um, conservation around that time that they would not repair or remove any of the changes made to that monument mm -hmm. until the government of the city recognized what was going on and wow. the atrocities being committed. For me, it, it, for me, aside from helping Will with the aforementioned, I'm also in the process of creating more visuals for the for the project itself, and the visuals in mind are maps. Uh, there, there's different maps that we've created over the course of our. Um, well, the maps that are tied to our different titles, like for instance, monuments of oppression, monuments of reconciliation, and so forth. So I'm going to aside from creating maps that focus only on those categories. I also want to create a map that focuses on the status of, of the monuments themselves. So for instance, uh, monuments that are completely toppled, monuments mm. that are partially toppled, monuments that have been relocated and so forth, uh, and then monuments that are still standing as is. So, so I'm going to, that, that's something that it's, it is in the works because uh, I mean, it's also very helpful aside from having our, our text reports also have a visual aspect to them as well. So that's wow. in the works. And uh, as well as uh, we're looking forward to our uh, time in San Antonio, because there we're going to have, uh, aside from a plenary meeting, which is going to be led by Sakina, I'm also going to be doing a presentation on the Christopher Columbus statue that was located in Mexico City mm. on for our U.S.-Mexico collaborative workshop. So that's, that's where we're going to have, uh, I guess you could say it's a good time for us to uh, really disseminate this information to our uh, world heritage colleagues and community all around the world. Absolutely. Yes. I'm excited. It's going to be a really, really cool time seeing everybody do their thing, having the ability to show the world the, the toolkit on a, on a bigger scale is going to be really, really fulfilling for me. So thank you guys so, so much for being a part of this show. It means a lot to me. I think it means a lot to the world heritage team. Um, the, the ability for people to come together and kind of show that there are multiple sides to this monuments conversation. Um, you guys provided so much insight, um, more than I thought was even possible um, in, in 45 minutes. So thank you guys so much for that. Um, this is a question we ask everybody, whether it be activists or artists or politicians and the like answer it as concisely or as elaborately as you like. Um, I'm sure there's going to be an interesting answer coming from both of you guys, but how do, do we correctly address monuments of oppression? Uh, Gilbert, do you want to start? Sure. All right, man. So I'll try to do it as concise as I can. We, the best way that we could address monuments of oppression is through first off transparency is, is the recognize or first recognizing that there is something there that there is a trauma that there is a problematic history tied to those monuments uh, secondly transparency because it can't mm -hmm. be where one institution says oh no you know we're we're just turning a blind eye or as they say in spanish the la vista gorda the fat vision where we're sort of like looking the other way mm. uh, and when the other side's yelling and screaming oh you you know there's this there's this so there has to be transparency and i'd say the third 
was just simply collaboration. They need to work together to to address it. Maybe, for instance, in the case of the missions, not tear them down. Uh, just put like a reinterpretive plaque uh, or put up a monument uh, of a Chumash community or something like that. That acknowledges the, the, the Native American or the Native American population from within the vicinity. I, I would say that those are the three. Uh, acknowledgement, transparency, and collaboration. Mm-hmm. Mm, I love that. Acknowledgement, transparency, and collaboration. That's great. Um, William, what about you? Sorry, can you restate the question again? Yeah. Um, how do we correctly address monuments of oppression? Monuments of oppression. Okay. Um, I've, I still continue to think about this question for quite some time, even when you know, I head into work. I think... Um, I don't think there is a correct way to address monuments of oppression. I think after doing this work and being almost two years in, I've noticed that a lot of the ways I even speak about some of the monuments isn't always correct. And, you know, we our our project is predicated on addressing things as oppressive or sometimes controversial. But sometimes communities often, well, not sometimes, I, I want to say that often communities see those two terms and they're in disagreement with how they feel about monuments. Mm-hmm. Sure, there, there may be some examples or listings that they don't agree with, but other times the verbiage of oppressive and controversial is a bit too much to summarize how people relate or how people value a monument and this can change um pretty quickly uh the war with ukraine had immediately changed ties between um the two countries involved and several of the monuments were destroyed or willingly taken down as a result of that exchange and the war that continues to be fought overseas Hmm. but if you if you were to ask anyone before that point they probably they probably would have said that that monument's not oppressive yeah and it took that push and that additional context to really change the way people would address a monument so i don't want to say that there is a correct way to address monuments of oppression but i do believe that there's a difference between protesting and taking a vigilante s stance on what's in your public space. Right. And I think that um, although there's instances where communities may feel their voices cannot be heard and things may get destroyed, things may get vandalized, um, I feel like oftentimes we're too quick to demonize those actions as well as just being riots or people with no power. But in reality, it brought attention. It got people talking. Um, It's more than just senseless destruction. But when you address uh, a monument seen as oppressive or controversial, you have to understand that there's this middle ground between um, conservation or preservation and um, social justice and that Mm -hmm. you can't always have that change 
happen immediately. Yeah. It's it's a balancing act that's very difficult for me today to still understand, but I'm glad that the toolkit is adapting and evolving because that makes it so much easier to not use the same solution for every case. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We'd like to thank the Andrew Mellon Foundation, the entire World Heritage USA team, and all of our listeners around the world for tuning in. Tune in next month as we talk to another leader in the historic preservation space. Stay tuned and visit our website for more updates. As always, I'm Miles Azilo. Thank you.